Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to episode 85 of Conquering Columbus. This week, we sat down with Dave Kalina, and Dave is the co-founder of O2, an oxygenated recovery and energy drink designed to help you recover from your job, your workout, and everything in between. Dave really has a great story. We had a lot of fun talking with him on this episode, and uh, hopefully you guys enjoy the interview. Before we get to that interview, though, I want to ask you all for a quick favor. If you haven't already, pick up your phone and hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're listening on. It really helps support our show, and it'll make sure you never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. We also want to take a moment to thank some of our supporters. Conquering Columbus is brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. And for more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them is a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at GoFMX.com. Mike here again. Do you want to be a sponsor of Conquering Columbus? We are looking for some new supporters to help keep the show going in 2018. To inquire about how you can help support the podcast, please send an email to Mike at ConqueringColumbus.com. All right, Conquerors, let's get the show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Today on the show, we have Dave Kalina. And Dave is a founder and CEO at O2. O2 is an oxygenated recovery drink designed to be a healthy way to recover from everything from your workout to your job. Uh, before founding O2, Dave worked at Nationwide as a senior marketing manager, and he graduated from Ohio State with a degree in business administration. And welcome to Conquering Columbus, Dave. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, Glad we're here. really excited to have you here on the show today. Uh, appreciate you stepping in on short notice. Yeah, of course. And uh, where we usually like to start the show off is maybe take a step back. We know where you are today, you know, running O2. But can we take a step back and maybe talk a little bit about your childhood growing up? I know your brother also happens to be yep. entrepreneurial-minded. So tell us a little bit about what life was like growing up for you. Yeah, yeah. So um, without boring everybody too, too much, um, I grew up in Cincinnati. And I uh, had a pretty normal childhood up until, I would say, fifth grade is when my parents got divorced. And that kind of, you know, like every divorce leaves a pretty big impact on, on childhood. And my younger brother, I think I was 15, no, I was maybe closer to 12, and he was six when my parents split. So we had a, a divided household for a few years. Um, and then when I was 15, our dad passed away. And that, at that point, I kind of look at, that's when I grew up in a lot of ways. Um, up to that point, I didn't really take much seriously. Um, but when, when my father passed away is when I stepped into the role of like big brother, big caretaker. So that was a big defining moment for me. Um, and the next few years, I uh, had a normal high school experience. I didn't really do much outside of stuff that I probably shouldn't have been doing. Um, didn't take grades too seriously and, uh, and took partying a little too seriously. Um, and by the time it was time to graduate, I had I was in about the top 
maybe just barely the top 50% of my graduating class. Um, so academics were not really my strong suit. Um, but I ended up going to Ohio State. I was lucky enough to be accepted there. Um, I'm sure that I wouldn't get accepted today were the me of, of uh, 2000 uh, applying. Um, but got into Ohio State and I had pretty much all the partying out of my system by the time that I got there. And so I was able to turn it on and I started to take academics pretty seriously and started to think about what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and over the course of the next four years, I did really well at school, had a bunch of leadership positions and ended up graduating uh, summa cum laude from OSU in the top 1% of my class. So I was able to, to flip a switch. Um, and after college is when I started working at Nationwide, which was my first job. And then growing up, um, can we take it back a little bit? Yeah. What did your parents do for a living? And uh, sorry, you're about passing your dad, kind of if, if it's something you're comfortable with yeah, talking yeah. about. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, kind of what, what impact did he have on you growing up and to your, did it affect your entrepreneurial spirit today? It's a good question. Um, so both of my parents uh, were therapists, believe it or not. Um, so I like to think that I'm a somewhat normal byproduct of, of two therapists. Um, probably not, but um, when I decided to leave my day job, my mom, who's, who's older, she's 70, she just turned 71, she's very kind of old school in, in a lot of ways. Um, I had a great day job in Nationwide. It was making a lot of money, very stable position. And she asked me, you know, why, why, why would you even think about giving that up? I mean, you're doing this, this stable career and you're getting ready to start your own business. Why would, what are you thinking? And I told her, well, mom, that's the same thing that you did. <laughs> you know, She's got her own practice and so did my dad. Um, so to answer your question, did that have much of an impact on my entrepreneurialism? I'm sure it did, just in ways that I probably didn't, didn't recognize. Um, but when my dad passed, I think at that point I became much more self-sufficient oriented um, as a result of that. I mean, we, came, we already had a pretty small family. I mean, it was me, uh, my dad, my mom and my brother. And so all of a sudden it, it became, you know, just the three of us. And uh, you know, therapists don't make a lot of money. Um, so I had to support my mom um, helping to raise my, my brother. Uh, and also, you know, I, was, I started working, I think my first job when I was 14. Um, and, and so that I always had a job and I, I held a job through, through high school and through college. And, I haven't been thankfully unemployed for you know more than uh, I guess a month probably. Um, so I think that, that that caused me to rely on myself probably more than I otherwise would have when my when my dad passed away. And I'm sure that both of them being therapists had something to do consciously or subconsciously with the decision to try and, and run my own business, albeit very different from you know a, a, a private practice. Yeah. Do you think that self reliance had any? sort of effects so I'm curious about how you flip that switch specifically because you see a lot of people go from you know hey partying in mm -hmm. high school really going on and then going the other direction so they yeah, go, yeah you know drop off get it you know day-to-day -day job and go the other direction yeah. so kind of what what do you think was key and instrumental in you being able to flip that switch great question so we're, we're gonna get real deep here um, <laughs> maybe this is where the byproduct of two therapists come come out but um, we got two cans of oxygenated O2. We're ready to roll. <laughs> yeah, that's I'm right. drinking it. It is absolutely delicious. Well, I've got you. orange mango going on right now. Thank you, thank you. We we spent a lot of time on that product before we launched it, and a lot of time on on the taste and and what's in there and what's not in there. Um, but okay, so to get back to the question, um, when I was growing up prior to the divorce. I, I was, um, I had I'd always kind of been considered like one of the, the special kids, right? It was in the gifted, gifted children's program growing up or whatever. Um, I remember at my, at my school, it's called CAP, and this is where all the smart kids, you know, would, would gather and take classes together. Um, and then when my parents split, this was when I was in fifth grade, I took it really, really hard. Um, and my grades went from really good to really bad really quickly. And the, uh, I, had, I had a teacher who I, I won't try and give away too many details, um, but she put a really big chip on my shoulder um, by making me feel really bad 
about, about my grades and, and did so in a very public way. And so I took that to heart um, as any impressionable fifth grader probably would. And um, I, I then proceeded to kind of behave in accordance to what she thought I was capable of, which was not much because my grades had declined. And so my grades continued to decline and um, I, was, I was booted out of the, the gifted kids program and for the next um, few years, I guess it would be six years until I graduated high school, that was, you know, that, that, was, that was Dave. That was, that was who I was, just, you know, kind of an average performer. Um, so why did things flip? I, I think that when, I think it was two factors. Um, by the time I got to college, I finally felt that it was time to see what I could do again. Um, so I, I, for whatever reason, that chip on my shoulder emerged. Um, and I wanted to sort of prove uh, that teacher and everybody else wrong, that I was, that I was capable of, of, of what, I, what I suspected I could, I could do um, and, and, and get good grades and hold leadership positions and be kind of the rock star student again. The second reason uh, was I had already done the, you know, go out a lot and drink a lot, smoke pot. I mean, I'd been doing that for four years, five years at that point. So it really wasn't anything special to me. Um, so I remember distinctly one Friday night I was, I was, uh, I was inside the dorm studying and I was in, um, you guys went to Ohio State, it was South Campus dorms, which was kind of party central. Um, and I could hear everybody out, outside partying. It was you know, 11, 12 o'clock at night and everybody, you know, all the freshmen are, are headed out to Chittenden Avenue for the house parties. And I'm just thinking, God, like, relax guys, you know? <laughs> like it's not a huge deal. Um, and what so- dorm specifically, if you don't mind? I was in Park. Okay. Yeah, I was Steve Park Hall. Resident. Were you nice? Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> um, we were Park Hall, 11th floor. The penthouse players, as we would uh, so kindly we refer to ourselves. The Ocho. Nice. <laughs> we were for the Ocho. I'm sure there are plenty of Ohio State people out there listening. To this, you know, and you're all shouting out your dorm. That's right. right now. But sorry, to shout out to I Park. Was curious. Um, but it just wasn't like it wasn't a big deal for me. You know, I I'd, I'd done that before, so the temptation really wasn't as there as much as it probably was for most other students. So, you know, one, I had something to prove, and and two, I didn't really feel the need to focus elsewhere. And so I studied my ass off, and I had fun. You know, I'd go out most Friday and Saturday nights, but um, come Sunday, I was hitting the books again, and come Monday, it was, you know, a full 12, 16 hours of classes and studying, same thing, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then I'd blow off a little steam Saturday, and then back to it on Sunday. Um, so I think that's kind of what led to my, you know, my success at OSU. It's interesting how you can kind of pick apart people's lives who are successful or have created something or gone off and, you know, made kind of leaps on their own. And then you find it, whether it's like a traumatic experience or just these pivotal points where like the threads kind of break a little bit mm -hmm. and you kind of step back and you do like an introspect on yourself and then you kind of decide who you are and where you want to go. And it sounds like you had a couple of those in your life, yeah. you know, one with the divorce, then one where you're sitting there in college and kind of look back and then some people choose right and some people choose left and it's interesting to see where it takes you. But kind of want to carry from there to talk about um, once you get to nationwide kind of what did you learn throughout that experience working for a big company mm -hmm. and then we can jump into kind of what did the leap to entrepreneurship look like for yeah. you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that most everybody should spend at least some time before starting a business honing a professional skill set at a, an established company. And, and Nationwide is very much so an established company. And I was able to secure a job in a, in a fantastic department straight out of college. I, 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 worked at a, I worked in Nationwide's corporate strategy group. And it was a very small uh, group at the time. And it, we all reported directly to the chief strategy officer who reported directly to the chief executive officer of Nationwide. And uh, everybody in that group was, was much smarter and much more accomplished than me. So I was in an environment that was very challenging, was very fast moving, and I, I learned a lot from a lot of different people, which was perfect for your first job, or at least it was for me. 
uh, because I could pick up on some skill sets that you know no way would I have had otherwise just exiting exiting college um, and so in strategy I learned the biggest thing that I learned in that so let's, I think it was about two years, two and a half years that I was in strategy, was number one, how to communicate effectively to executives. And executives are, are, are people who are very time stressed. Um, and number two, how to uh, clarify my thinking in order to communicate effectively to executives. So it was very, it was very communication based. Um, and, and that has helped me significantly um, T today with what I do, even though it's, it's miles away from, you know, corporate strategy at a, at a large insurance company, I still have to communicate very effectively to people who are very time stressed all the time. You know, you, if, if you want to, if you want to get in front of a Whole Foods buyer, and these guys have a thousand things that they're supposed to be doing at any given time, you have to get your point across real quick. And guess what? If you want to get your point across, you know, to a, to a chief financial officer at a Fortune 100 company, dealing with kind of the same thing, same mindset. You know, you better cut to the chase really, really quickly and make a compelling argument. Um, so that's helped. That helped me a lot. Uh, and then the remaining two and a half years were, uh, that I spent at Nationwide were in the marketing uh, group. Where when I left Nationwide, I was I was leading the innovation um, side for the Nationwide Insurance marketing brand, and and that uh, gave me a lot of exposure into marketing, much of which I don't use at all today. You know, Nationwide's, our, our, our budget for advertising at, at Nationwide was, you know, I don't know, 80, 100 million a year, something like that. Um, my, my marketing <laughs> budget today for O2 is a fraction of a fraction of that. Um, so television ads for the Super Bowl aren't really on the cards. Um, but again, getting your point across quickly to a group of people who you're trying to make a compelling argument to, uh, in this case, to buy our product, it was, it was a, a pretty effective uh, skill set that I that I got out of that that time there as well. Absolutely, and you know, I was actually reading just the other day in the Wall Street Journal, they were talking about how at Fortune 100 companies like that, they're actually setting time limits of about five minutes on their meetings now, and if you can't get what you say you have to say out in 30 seconds, they just cut you off, say nope, that's enough, you're done, there goes your idea. So it's interesting that you say that because I mean we're living in a time-strapped mm -hmm. uh, world. Everybody's so. pressed for time, yep. right? Everybody's pressed for time. Absolutely. And and everybody's got a thousand things competing for their attention at any given time. Probably now more so than ever. You know, we're we're easier to reach than we ever have been before, and we're getting sold more stuff than than we ever have been before as well. Yeah, and it's like. I almost think of it like your day is this bubble and you t tend to find a way to occupy it with anything that, like you take one thing away and then mm -hmm. you find something else that will expand and you always kind of fit the edges. 100%. So now with all these social media outlets and all these areas that we have coming into us that are almost kind of addicting and they continue to appeal to our senses, it's like, it's not, I don't even know if it's that people are more strapped for time, but just the amount of directions they're being pulled mm -hmm. seems a little a lot more granular. But um, maybe talk a little bit more and speaking of granular again, like at a deeper level, your transition from nationwide to coming up with the idea mm -hmm. for the company and actually finally saying, okay, I'm going to branch out. Did you launch it while you were still working or how did that process work for you? Yes, I did. And, um, that was, that was probably one of the better things that I could have done. Um, after about four years at nationwide, I started to kind of get an itch. Um, and I had accomplished a lot. I was, I was, uh, you know, I, I think I had one of the highest, if not the highest, um, positions and, and, and salaries to accompany that position of, of anyone in my age in the company. Um, and I'd worked for some of the smartest, brightest, sharpest minds um, at that company. And I, I didn't really feel like I could get much more out of that experience. And I also wasn't happy. Um, you know, I, I had a, a lifestyle that, that I would bet um, many of your listen, listeners can kind of relate to. Whereas I was, I was very comfortable financially, and I was buying a lot of stuff, and I was going out a lot, and I was <coughs> miserable most of my waking hours because most of your waking hours you spend at work, and if you're not happy on the job, then you're miserable. You know, no matter how many, how much you're, you're making a year or whatever perks associated with that. So I knew I wanted to do something else. Um, I, I suspected it wasn't in the corporate environment because I, I 
there are a lot of things about that environment that I think are very good and a lot of things about that environment that for me weren't very good. Um, slower moving, bureaucratic, political, that sort of thing. Um, and so I had um, one, of my, one of my former bosses, the chief strategy officer there, um, he had several years ago helped start the first um, uh, private charter high school called Cristo Rey in Chicago. Have you guys heard of Cristo Rey before? Do you know what that is? So, so Cristo Rey is a network of schools, or they're around 25 to 30 now, that provide really high quality uh, private Catholic education. Um, it's, it's 9 through 12 to a group of very low-income students. And as you can imagine, private high-quality education is expensive, and low-income students don't have money to pay for it. So I think it was 20, probably maybe 25 years ago now, uh, the first Crystal Ray School was started in Chicago. And um, my former boss, Steve, was on the founding board of this school. And they had to figure out, they knew they wanted to provide this high-quality education to this group of, of kids who couldn't afford it. And so they had to figure out how to pay for it. And so they came out with a, a very innovative um, program where four of those kids would share an entry-level job doing administrative-type stuff at a company like Nationwide. And in return for the labor, so they would basically alternate days. So I'd work Monday, you'd work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then I'd be back at it Friday. And then you know every kid would work uh, two days out of the week, I think once every four, once every four weeks. Um, so in return for the labor, those companies would pay uh, about $30,000 to that group of, of students, which is a, a fairly common salary for that type of position. So there are all kinds of benefits associated with hiring at that level in addition to kind of giving back. Um, well, what they found was, one, not only does that take the cost of, of high quality private education from around, let's call it 10 grand a kid to around two grand a kid, but two, it also inspires them to see what they're really capable of. Because if you're coming from a, a low income demographic, chances are you don't have much exposure to the type of people who work at Nationwide or this company or Jones Day down the street, right? But this gives them that exposure and they see, okay, well, this is actually something that I'm capable of doing. Well, so it paid for the education and it was so successful that um, there, on average, Crystal Ray's high school graduation rate is, is something like 99%. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Whereas the average um, graduation rate at, at the areas where these kids are coming from is closer to 30-40% high school. So it's, it's very, very effective. Um, and it was so effective that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation got involved in 1999 and helped expand this group of, of schools, this network of schools, to 25, 30 schools um, today. Anyway, all the way of saying, um, Steve helped found the first one in Chicago. He made a big speech about it at his 60th birthday um, that, I, that I heard, and he was saying, well, you know, it's not the stuff that we do here that I'm really proud of, and he was really proud of that stuff, but he's like, looking back on my life, you know, it's the things like Crystal Ray that I'm most proud of, and here's what Crystal Ray is. So that piqued my attention. Um, I was visiting my mom in Cincinnati, found a article, and this was 2008-ish, that Crystal Ray was coming to Cincinnati, and I knew there was one in Cleveland, and I thought, well, what the hell? Columbus is the only growing city in Ohio, so there needs to be one in Columbus, and I approached Steve about uh, opening one, and he said, that's great, I'll support you, but you gotta do all the work. And I was like, all right, very, very classic, uh, classic, classic executive type speak. Um, and so I, I helped start the first Crystal Ray School here in Columbus. And through that experience is when I really cut my teeth, cut my teeth in the entrepreneurial world because I had to mobilize um, a group of people to raise a, a pretty large amount of money, at least for a bunch of amateur rookies who had never done it before, and um, convince the Diocese of Columbus that this was worth doing. And, and I was able to do that. And so after that experience, I felt like I had what it took. Little did I know how difficult it would be, but I, I felt like I had what it took to, to make something from scratch. Um, and so I, I looked at what I wish existed, um, and I recognized that I had a need for a drink that would replace all the Red Bulls and Gatorades that I was fueling my otherwise healthy lifestyle uh, with. 
And I thought, well, there should be one of these, and there's not, so I'm gonna try and make it myself. How hard can that be, right? <laughs> Fast forward five years, famous last words, and that's when we launched O2. So five years from ideation to actual creation then? Yeah, yeah, it took a while. Um, I, I, I can't remember the exact year, it was either 2009, 2010, but I'd, I'd met um, a guy who I became fast friends with through the Crystal Ray, um, uh, the Crystal Ray School endeavor, and he was a physician fi finishing his residency at Ohio State, and he had a very similar lifestyle as me, you know, work hard, play hard, uh, eat clean, um, and kind of burn the candle at both ends. Um, and he was a physician, so like he became my doctor friend. So one day I was like, all right, doctor friend, you know, you, you're a doctor, so you have all the answers. What do you do? I know you lead a pretty similar lifestyle. What do you do instead of Red Bull and Gatorade and all this other bullshit that I'm putting into my body? He's like, well, I drink the same stuff. I'm like, all right, well, you know, if, if you do that and you know better and I do that and I know better, chances are a lot of our friends are like that and a lot of their friends are like that. So there's a need for this drink that doesn't, exist yet we should make it that's going to be super simple we'll become bajillionaires in three years um it, it that's my favorite amount of money by the way that's also <laughs> the exact same amount that i want still still waiting on that bajillion dollar check um but it took us four about four and a half years from the time we first had that fateful conversation to the time i was able to hold a can of o2 in my hands and and sell it to somebody um, and that was a really arduous activity because I had no idea what I was doing and neither did he. You know, he's, he's a doctor, he's not a food scientist. You know, I came from uh, a, a large insurance company. I didn't come from a beverage background or packaged goods background. Um, so there was a lot of spinning of the wheels that, that took place. Um, but, you know, in, in hindsight, I'm, I'm very glad that we did it the way that we did because you know, now it would take me probably three to six months tops from idea to, with the right resources, getting something on a shelf. Um, but I know a lot more now because of what I went through than what I did then, obviously. So what's the, what, can you give us like a time frame, like date, when you first launched your product? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so we started, part of our spinning of the wheels process was we didn't know where to even begin to look to find um, a manufacturer. And, and certainly, um, uh, we didn't know where to begin to look to find a quality manufacturer of a product that was you know, incredibly innovative for the beverage world. Um, o O2, at first glance, O2 seems pretty simple and straightforward, right? It's, it's got uh, 20 calories, two grams of sugar, it's all natural, a lot of drinks like that out there. Um, it's got a lot of electrolytes, it's got a good amount of caffeine, it tastes good, so now we're getting you know, more and more rare of a find. The thing that makes O2 most unique though is that it's made with highly oxygenated water to help the body process toxins faster. Now that was an insight that came from my medical doctor buddy that came from 50 years of medical research that shows the accelerating effects of oxygen when ingested on the liver's metabolism of toxins. There's a reason <laughs> that nobody else has made an oxygenated drink. It's because it's a tremendous pain in the ass to make <laughs> an oxygenated beverage. And we had an incredibly difficult time finding a manufacturer who, who didn't laugh us out of the room when we told them what we were up to. So as we were spinning our wheels, we decided, you know what, screw it, let's take things into our own hands. Let's just make something ourselves. And let's see if we can, you know, Let's see if we can rig a bar gun to oxygenate the, the water. And let's just buy some ingredients online. And I, I, it's incredible that, we, I don't know, we didn't get arrested or something. Um, yeah, it sounds, sounds very uh, Breaking Bad is where we're going. <laughs> right. like the... um, and, and let's just see what we can do on our own. And we did. So we, we hired a food scientist from, from Ohio State to come up with kind of the initial recipe, we'll call it. And we were able to... Um, we were able to procure a bar gun and we swapped out uh, the CO2 that's used to make the carbonated water in a bar gun with a tank of, of, of oxygen, um, medical grade oxygen. I'll give you three guesses on where that came from. And um, we started, we rented out 
a, a kitchen in the short north in a restaurant, uh, Cajun restaurant called DeLevy, still around today. Um, we rented out space in DeLevy. Cajun food is cooked in batches, and the restaurant owner, Justin, makes all of his food on Sunday and Monday, and then he's open Tuesday through Saturday. So we have this kitchen that we found that was unoccupied for the most part um, on, on Mondays. And so we would go in there Monday and we would make our concoction and we would bottle it and we would apply, this is in these really clunky, expensive glass bottles. Um, we would apply uh, these, these really clunky, expensive stickers to it that served as labels. Uh, we were very careful not to do anything illegal. We complied with all the FDA regulations and we used you know, very straightforward ingredients. Um, and we started selling this drink that we called Formula AM. We sell, started selling this drink uh, out of the back of, of my car to anyone who would buy it and people would buy it. It was, this, it was a drink that tasted terrible. Uh, doesn't matter who you ask, I mean this drink tasted awful. And we were selling it for five bucks a pop. And I knew it was time to really leave my day job because uh, I'd, I'd gone kind of part-time uh, to that point. I knew it was time to leave my day job when people returned for more. You know, you can sell things to people once, right? Most, that's, that's a skill that, that you can do. But getting them to buy it again, that's, that's the hard part. And you know you're onto something when, when somebody returns for more. So, so folks were coming back for more of this drink that tasted terrible and was really expensive. And that's when we knew that we were on to something. Um, so after about nine months of doing this pilot, it was really just a, a, you guys are probably familiar with the concept of minimum viable product. It was an MVP. We wanted to test the waters, see if there was a market out there for something like this. And it turns out there was. So after about nine months, we discontinued the pilot. I went back to kind of um, not so much the drawing board, but I, I, I started to get really serious about a business plan and, and serious about a company. And so I solicited a few people who had served as mentors uh, of, of, of mine over the past few years, um, all of whom were very well established in their respective fields, to serve on an advisory board for me. And uh, once I had the advisory board and the business plan, uh, we, we raised a small amount of capital to finance our first large-scale production run, which you can't do in the back of a, of a kitchen in the short north. Um, and Still we selling out of the trunk, though. <laughs> that's <laughs> right. That's right. That was year one, for sure. Um, and we went from producing around 30 cases a week to producing uh, about 20,000 cases in a day with, with this, with this large-scale manufacturing run. And, and the product changed significantly. We hired a team of, of professional food scientists um, who, who do this with large and small brands that, that uh, like ours that everybody would, would know. Uh, they're based out of Kentucky. They're really good at what they do. Uh, we spent a lot of time on not only the formulation, but also the taste and the flavor profile, the design of the can, which we've recently changed uh, as, as well. Um, and only when we felt the product was as good as we could possibly make it did we launch. And then that was uh, February of 2014. And, and we did launch out of the back of my car. And so what was the exact date? So you launched on February 14. When do you leave your job? What's the exact date there? I left my, so my last, my last day at Nationwide was, uh, I want to say January 1st, 2012. Okay. So it was the end of 2011, basically. I had a bunch of unused vacation time. Um, so my last day in Nationwide's office was probably at some point in November of 2011. So you went two years grinding without a paycheck, and that was just off of the first round of funding that you raised? Then? No, I didn't raise any money up to that point. Okay. Um, we raised capital in 2013. So there were all of 2012 and all of 2013, I didn't have an income that was coming from a steady source. And so I had gotten uh, pretty deep into a type of mixed martial arts and self-defense training called Krav Maga in 2010, 2011. And so once I left my job, I started coaching Krav to, to kind of make, help make ends meet. Um, Krav Maga led me to CrossFit and I started coaching CrossFit um, in 2013, and those those th that was great for kind of a free gym membership, but that wasn't really paying you know paying the bills. Um, what I did what I did to pay the bills was um, you can make a, a decent amount of money doing this. I would buy uh, electronics on clearance at Staples or Target 
or similar stores and then flip them on Amazon. Um, and there's a whole industry of people who do this. It's really lucrative. Um, it, it provided me with just enough money to kind of stay afloat. Um, and so when we launched or when we did the first round of financing, I was able to um, go from making maybe 15 to, to $20,000 a year um, to making $24,000 a year. Uh, but the nice thing was by that time, you know, I, I'd adapted to this, this lifestyle that was very far removed from my six-figure nationwide days. And just to have a steady paycheck was fucking awesome, <laughs> you know? Like, I didn't have to worry about where the next treasure hunt was going to come from. Um, and, and so I was very comfortable at that, at that uh, you know, at that arrangement for uh, another year and a half, two years before I finally gave myself a raise. Yeah, and so from 2014 to today, uh, talk to us a little bit about how the company's changed, how your role has changed. I mean, I know recently you guys got your product on shelves over at Kroger and GNC. Mm -hmm. um, so can you know maybe touch on that process as well and how big of a step that is for O2? Yeah, I mean, you know, the one thing that I got right out of the gate was the liquid inside that can. Everything else has changed. Everything else has changed. Um, and I think that you know, it's, it's, it's definitely been a grind and it's been a struggle, but man, I wouldn't do it any other way because I don't know, unless you've done this before, I don't know if there's another way to do it. You know, you just have to be comfortable knowing that when you start, what you're going to do probably isn't going to work and you're probably going to have to change a lot of stuff until you finally arrive at sort of the, the, the formulas for success or your secret sauce or whatever. Um, and only now do I kind of feel like we're, 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 we're sort of getting to that point. Um, but, but we've gone from me selling O2 out of the back of my car. Um, and I, I was doing everything. I was, I was doing the, the sales, the deliveries, um, the online fulfillment, I mean, the invoicing, you name it. I was, I was, I was doing it all in 2014 um, to now we've got a, a team. And it's, it's not just me, thankfully, and, and I, I don't do deliveries uh, anymore unless it's a special request from my mom or a girlfriend. Um, but we've, we've been able to build a model uh, that, that really works for us now based on the experience, largely based on the experience that I had from doing everything in year one. You know, I don't, I don't think I would have known um, to distribute the way that we distribute uh, unless I you know, would have been driving from gym to gym or store to store. I don't think I would have been able to refine the skill set of talking to grocery managers or selling a CrossFit gym so that I could train employees to sell CrossFit gyms on, on how to sell O2. I, I, I just don't think that that would have come uh, if I hadn't have done all that stuff myself for a good portion of time. Um, so when we launched O2, I didn't really know who was going to buy it? You know, the, the idea was just to kind of get his, put it in as many local stores and, and shops as possible and see what stuck. And that's what, that's what I did. And so year one, uh, you know, February, March, there were convenience stores selling O2. Um, there were, we were selling it online. There were a couple other different types of retailers. Um, but I was fortunate enough to have a pretty good network of CrossFit gym owners established. And they uh, had a few friends here locally that owned gyms, and they started selling O2 just to kind of do me a favor. And it turns out it did really, really well in CrossFit gyms. And I was, I was really surprised, honestly, because I'd, you know, I'd, I'd been doing CrossFit for years at that point, and I'd been coaching for at least a year. And I thought it was a stupid idea to try and sell a product in CrossFit gyms. Because like I, you know, I bring my protein shake to the gym, and I, I leave. I don't buy stuff from a CrossFit gym, whatever. At least that was my mindset. Um, and it turns out um, that was a very stupid mindset. And so we had a, a lot of people buying O2 from CrossFit gyms. And it took me just as much time to drive, you know, to Hilliard and drop off 10 cases of O2 to a CrossFit box out there as it would to drive to Clintonville Co-op and drop off four cases. And the Hilliard gym would sell through those 10 cases in about two or three weeks. And the Co-op might take a month, month and a half to sell through their four cases. So just from having only so many hours in the day, I had to quickly focus on where to sell our product. 
And so I focused in on where it was doing best, which was CrossFit gyms. And then midway through the year, I took a backpack full of product and, and waltzed into my local Whole Foods store and asked to talk to the manager and sampled him. And, and he, he allowed us to put it on the shelf and see how it did. And we did really, really well there. And so we focused on CrossFit gyms and Whole Foods stores. That was the strategy year one. That was the strategy on a larger scale year two. That was the strategy on an even larger scale year three. And at the end of year three, we were sold in a, a few hundred CrossFit gyms across the country and, and several Whole food stores in sort of the mid-Atlantic region. And so um, as we kind of start year four, we've started to expand uh, fairly uh, aggressively, at least in the Columbus market, outside of our historical, you know, exclusive focus on, on CrossFit gyms and Whole Foods type retailers. And, and part of that has been an expansion with Kroger that's gone incredibly well. Um, and so we're, we're, we're learning all over again. You know, I, I hadn't done a bunch of demos um, for a while until we got authorization at Kroger. And then all of a sudden I find myself spending every Saturday and Sunday morning doing a demo at Kroger again. And it's like, oh man, back to the basics, you know? Um, but, but in order to scale anything effectively, I think you first got to figure out how to do it yourself and then grow from there. And as you guys continue that scale, <clears throat> I'm curious about how your brand control works with deciding whether to put it into a Kroger's or not, or keep it into the Whole Foods aspect. Cause obviously you guys kind of got this niche with you know, the CrossFit community mm -hmm. that focused on health and they got this brand integrity where you see it in Whole Foods and you have a certain reputation. And I'm also curious to hear, since you found that niche in the CrossFit community, have you reached out and done like social media influencers and things like mm -hmm. that? Has that been a bit of part of your marketing attempt? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely part of our of our marketing. We have um, several athletes that we sponsor who are who are really well accomplished, who are very, very much accomplished in, in the CrossFit scene. Um, I would, you know, I, I would say that's a, that's a part of the company that I'm, I'm less involved in now. I tend to be more focused on what happens at, at, a, at a retail level versus what happens online. I've got a great guy who used to run marketing for Homage who came on about a year ago to run marketing for O2 and, and he manages all of our athlete relationships. Um, but that's the easy question, yeah. We, we, we have some sponsored athletes and these are games level athletes and people who are will be conquering the games in the coming coming years. Um, the harder question is how do you maintain your brand integrity um, as you scale? Um, the second thing that I've got, I got right-ish starting out is that I, I, I tried to be careful with how quickly or not we grew. I, I didn't want to do what I think a lot of um, companies in, in my industry do, which is try to grow as fast as possible, get as many people as possible, selling your product and all of a sudden you've got a thousand retailers who have your product on the shelf and it's just sitting there because nobody's ever heard of it and it doesn't move and then you know everybody's unhappy um, I wanted to instead focus on getting a a narrow subset of retailers to do really well with our product so for example Whole Foods you know I didn't I didn't want to come anywhere close to launching in an, a you know a, a, an entire region of Whole Food stores, much less national, because that would have put us out of business for sure. Um, instead, I, I just wanted to see what Whole Foods was like at one store, and and so that's what we did. We started selling at the Lane Avenue store, and then over the course of about six weeks, uh, we grew sales and started to become one of their top performing uh, beverages. And at that point, I approached the Dublin store, and then did the same thing there, and then did the same thing at the Cincinnati stores and the Cleveland stores, and so on and so forth. So I wanted to make sure that we grew in a way that would allow us to be successful at, at each retailer. Um, and I also wanted to make sure that we grew in channels that complemented each other. So, so CrossFit gyms, Whole Foods stores, uh, Kroger stores even, I mean these are all places where our demographic is, is shopping pretty regularly. You know, if, if you do CrossFit, you're at the gym three, four, or five times, five times a week. And there's no better, I maintain to this day, there's no better place to buy O2 than a CrossFit gym because, man, talk about getting the product in the hands of somebody who needs it. The best O2 you'll ever have is after you finish a CrossFit benchmark workout because you're exhausted. Um, second best might be after you finish your marathon. But once we knew that that would do well, um, we started to look, where else do CrossFitters shop? And CrossFitters shop at Whole Foods. You know, I shop at Whole Foods. You guys might shop at Whole Foods. Our demographic shops at Whole Foods. So... Um, 
after we started to kind of really dig into Whole Foods, well, what else is, is kind of uh, doing, doing some interesting, what other retailers are doing interesting things with, with the, natural, the natural market? And Kroger is doing some incredible things within their natural, their natural market offering. That's a segment that they're taking very, very seriously. And Kroger's become a huge retailer of natural products like ours. And as a result, it's attracting more and more people like us who care about what they put in their bodies to shop at Kroger because there are a lot of Kroger stores out there. You know, so, so every channel that we focus on, whether it's CrossFit or Whole Foods or Kroger, we're trying to serve a similar demographic and make O2 available to people at their convenience. And we have to do so in a way that the price is consistent too. Um, so I, I, you know, I don't want um, a, a store selling O2 for below an, another store. Like I don't want to get in that price competitiveness game because you lose some brand integrity and it's confusing to people and it, it, costs, it costs money. So. We, we've tried really hard and continue to try really hard to make sure that the experience of buying O2, including the price and the place, is consistent um, for our demographic. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit, you know, before we uh, move on to some of our final questions, I want to talk a little bit about what your guys' plans for the future are, where do you see yourself in O2 in the next five, ten years? It's a good question, man. Um, you know, talk about how my role has changed. I went from being more more or less a, a salesman slash delivery driver to now kind of stepping into the CEO role. You know, I've always had that title, but at this point, you know, we're we've we're a real company. You know, we've kind of outgrown um, the garage days, and we're trying to figure out what the next phase really looks like. And so, in a lot of ways, I feel like I'm starting from scratch in that sense too. Um, so I don't really know what what the future holds. Um, one thing that I've learned is if you, know, if you want to see God laugh, make a plan, right? I, I know that I want to continue to expand within CrossFit because we've got a lot of upside there. There are uh, hundreds and hundreds, thousands of gyms that have never even heard of O2, and I want to change that. Um, I want to continue to expand with Whole Foods because I know we do really well there and we can make, uh, we can make that work um, for, for us and for Whole Foods and, and provide a very solid customer experience and Whole Foods. And we're really excited about Kroger too. I mean, Kroger is the largest grocery store, um, and I think on the planet, and I'm pretty sure in the United States. And they're a Cincinnati-based company, and I'm a Cincinnati guy. And so far, Kroger has been fantastic and hugely supportive of, of O2. And they've, the people we've worked with have, have, been, have been great to work with. Um, we want to make sure that we're not we're not getting out in front of our skis. We want to make sure that we aren't trying to bite off more than we can chew while still growing the business in a, in a responsible way. Um, so as lame of an answer as it is, you know, I kind of just want to keep doing what we've been doing and build on the success that we've had. And we'll start to explore some other areas too. Um, you know, we're, we, we decided not to go all in with GNC. Um, that was, that was a, an option that we had um, earlier or later last year, at the tail end of last year, earlier this year, um, and we chose not to pursue it just because we didn't feel we were ready. Um, I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to start selling at a bunch of GNC stores and and not be able to support that type of growth. Um, so we're going to revisit that with GNC when the time is right, and we'd like to revisit that uh, with some other types of retailers too. But one of the challenges of of my job is is to recognize that A, we need to be saying no to a lot of opportunities, um, and B, we need to make sure we're saying no to the ones that you know, deserve a no right now, and, and only saying yes to the very few that do. Um, so, so we're probably gonna keep doing what we've been doing, just hopefully on a, on a larger scale. Yeah, and one of the final questions we always like to ask uh, centers around the theme of our show. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard it, it's live uncomfortably. Yeah, I like that. Uh, it means not to us, but without telling you too much about it, uh, how do you feel the phrase applies to your life and career, and what do you think of when you hear it? Um, I think of that quote from, uh, was it Eleanor Roosevelt, do something that scares you every day? Um, I think of another quote that has meant a lot to me um, as, as well, which is, um, you know, life kind of expands or contracts according to the, the, the courage that you have. Um, all of this, every single day, 
I'm, I'm fairly uncomfortable <laughs> because I don't have the slightest idea what it takes to run a successful 10, 50, 100 million dollar beverage brand, uh, but I'm, I'm really trying to, to figure that out pretty, pretty quickly. Um, so I think that it's easy to fall into a routine of comfort with anything that you do. And I think that the only way to get anywhere close to the most out of life is, is to live uncomfortably, do something that challenges you every day. It's one of the things I love about CrossFit. You know, I, I, I've been doing this for five or six years now and I still look forward to going to the gym because I know it's gonna be a challenge and it's up to me how uncomfortable or not I wanna make myself, how hard or not do I wanna work. And 2018 for me is a big year of, of, of discipline. And so when I step foot in that gym, I wanna push myself pretty hard every single time because that takes discipline to do. And, and discipline, I think, is at the root of, of all success, not just success in the gym, but also success in business and, and even in personal life. So long-winded answer to your question, but I think it's a good thing. Yeah, I think that's a great answer, Dave. And uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us on the show today. And uh, hopefully you enjoyed it. Yeah, very much. It's great to be here. Perfect. And Conquerors, thanks a lot for listening. That was Dave Kalina, CEO and founder at O2. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode. And if you want to try out O2, We'll have their website linked up in the show notes, but you should be able to get it at Whole Foods, Kroger around here in Columbus. We will talk to you guys next week. If you guys enjoyed that episode, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitchers, whatever your favorite podcast app is. And go ahead and click that subscribe button. It'll make sure you never miss another episode of Conquering Columbus. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to say... Thanks to all of our incredible sponsors one more time. Conquering Columbus is brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. And for more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get, you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.